So here we are, Robin. We're over here in Boston, Massachusetts, visiting Harvard University. Yes. Yeah. And today's show is about the future of education, specifically higher ed. What's significant? And just so our listeners know, we are really not in Boston, but this is one, this is the school where I had always dreamed of going. Oh, why is that? It was the dream. It's uh, honestly a very prestigious school. And Mm -hmm. I think that anybody that comes out of Harvard because of the uh, long history of the rigor and the high academics, it means, it says a lot. Yeah, it's a hard school to get into. So I respect that. It's one of the dream schools where I'd like to be a visiting professor or a guest speaker. So it's on my bucket list for sure. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So welcome to the Interim Whisperer Live to all of our listeners. This show is all about the future of work. We went to the virtual world and asked people, what was the first college in the United States? So let's take a listen in and hear what people think. What was the first college in the U.S.? I believe that would be Harvard University and Cambridge Math. The other thing is I know our show airs at Cornell University. Again, one of those top tier schools that has always been like, I want to go visit that and Princeton. I just love those schools that have been around and been the, I guess, the the brick of and brick and mortar of how colleges and universities all came about. Let's talk a little bit about education here. You know, it's the basis of how we learn here in the United States and around the world. And it's required by law for children to go to school. But we're not going to talk about, you know, elementary school, middle school, junior high or high school. We're going to talk about college. And so we're looking at higher ed and how it is perceived here in the United States, but we're going to touch on some of how it's perceived outside of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to explore facts and facets about education, and we're going to start with the history of it. So, Robin, what was the first college that opened its doors in the United States? Now, I'm pretty sure you know the answer because I told you. Yeah, it's Harvard. It is Harvard. Mm-hmm. Thus, the picture. Yes, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, and plus, it's like one of those dream places I want to be able to visit. Mm-hmm. Again, because I did go there, you know, schools are certainly yeah. required to go to school. And we also know that there's um, a lot of with COVID, it's changed how people are going to school. We all used to go in person and it was very a social environment, but it's beginning to change now. Yeah. There was this great article in Psychology Today that discussed the history of education. And I thought this was a great quote. We have to abandon the idea that schools are products of logical necessity or scientific insight. They are instead products of history, but rather they exist to be able to make sense and we view it from a historical perspective. All of that to say is, yes, there's a long history of education, but it doesn't mean it has to stay that way. And the thing about COVID is it's gone and changed how we view attending school, what it can look like, and how it's going to continue to move into the future. So that I think is the biggest struggle that I think schools are having. Yeah, I'd say so. How about UCF? You attend UCF. How's it been there? Yeah, the campus is all empty, you know, for mm-hmm. our fall semester. Um, very limited, um, you know, people allowed to be there. A lot of the classes are either completely online or they're like, you know, mixed mode classes where they only mm-hmm. have like one day a week. And like my class, all of my classes were online. 
When yeah. you go into the classroom, did they make you take a temperature too? Well, no, all of mine are online. So, but for the other students, I'm not sure if that, I doubt it. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, like <laughs> even in the library, like they make everyone sit six feet apart. Even if they live together or anything, they make everyone be separated and wear the mask at all times. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna look at the history of ed education. So um, in the era of hunters and gatherers, education was about survival. You, okay. know, you gotta be able to go, um, you know, you kill what you're going to eat basically. Yeah. You know, that's it. That's what you're learning. You're, you know, tilling the ground, you're all of those things, you know, farming the land. Uh, livestock because that's how people would learn but mm -hmm. there was also you know one one book that most people had and that would have been a bible yeah you know, so that's really where a lot of education was uh, focused however okay. um ch there's always this childlike instinct to play and to test the limits that mostly derived from that time frame of when we began moving into more of a formal uh, aspect of education so we're going to take a centurion leap and look at the roots. So in the 16th century, humans were much more advanced than the regular hunter and gatherer society. It was during this time that Europe began to develop the idea that a universal compulsory education, public education, would be needed. Um, they argued about what should be taught in the schools, but most many people believed that the person should read and learn scriptures, again, the Bible. And for, for a lot of reasons, because it taught wisdom, it taught you know, how to manage money, it taught how to interact with people. Yeah. And so it was a, a little primer, if you will, for how to live a, a good life. Right. Not mm -hmm. in the good life of how we might define it today, but you know, a life that was built around your faith and your family and right. your morally. Upstanding. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. So 17th century, why don't you take over on the 17th century and tell our listeners about it? Sure. Yeah. Germany was the leader of developing mandatory schooling, having laws in place um, in many of their states requiring that children attend school as well. So now in the United States, the history of education, you probably have heard kindergarten, right? And that's a German word. Oh, so okay. oh that's I didn't really, know that. Yeah. And it was true. spelled K-I-N-D-G-E-R-T-T, -T, I think it's A-N, maybe E-N. But mm -hmm. that was um, kindergarten. And so that's where that oh, okay. came over. So the Germans were big into education there. And that yeah. was significant. But now when we come into the U.S. history, Massachusetts was the first of the colonies to mandate that schooling of children was going to um, be taught and how to become a good Puritan because the Puritans was a religion and mm. they were one of the people that did come over and help found the United States. Industry leaders tried to um, benefit from education by encouraging schools to teach children punctuality and how to handle long hours of tedious work. It was also believed that reading was not a necessity and good hardworking individuals did not need to know how to read. So there's huh. this shift in education more towards like an agrarian life. Mm -hmm. You know, the people that are out there that were maybe making their candles and, you know, again, being farmers and selling wares in the city, you may not have to have an education. Right. No. So they wanted to breed the next generation of soldiers for their own country. They wanted to be able to teach people how to respect and serve the country. 
And they wanted to breed the next, uh, uh, they wanted the best for their children, believing that children should learn moral lessons and have important information such, such as math reading. Um, in total, they had an agenda when it came to schooling so that a child's best interests would be different from maybe the one adult next to them. So in that time frame, it was more about following a caste system and whatever your family was, that was going to be your career too. So there may oh, okay, not be education yeah. in it. If your dad was a farmer, you're a farmer. Right. If your dad was a doctor, then you were a doctor. Or we'll say mother was a doctor, but not as likely during that time. Yeah, no. Yeah. Definitely not. During that so, time. you know, that's an interesting um, perspective. Mm -hmm. But we're going to jump into the 19th and the 20th centuries where schooling, um, which was not that long ago for the 20th century, was mm -hmm. a place that was very similar to what we're experiencing today. You're in the classroom. Yeah. With right. how many people in your online classes, how many people would be in an online class? In an online class, it's more like 50 or maybe even 75 or 100. You know, it's a lot more yeah. than in a regular class. Well, the regular classes in person, they could be from 20 students to up to like, like 80 or even 100. Really? You know? yeah. yeah. So that differs depending on the course. But. I went to University of Florida for my first two years. And when I went there, that was the, you know, it's like big classes, like, you know, there's 60,000 plus students that attend UCF. So mm -hmm. I would be sitting in a big giant auditorium with approximately anywhere 200, 300 students. And we were all there listening to one person lecture for us. I don't know how I consider that necessarily like going to school. When yeah. I switched over to Rollins, um, they locked the classroom down and that's where I graduated from. My mm -hmm. first two years was Florida. The last two years of college was Rollins College for my undergrad. It was uh, 22, no more than 22. Okay, well, that's good. Well, Nothing because they figured that was the best amount of learning. Yeah. So you're saying that you've had at UCF smaller classes mm -hmm. in person. Yeah, it had like... Yeah, sometimes like 15 people in it. Wow. 20, yeah. That's good to hear mm -hmm. because that, again, it encourages that social interaction. That yeah, you need, definitely. You know, and, you know, that. you can work in groups. Mm -hmm. For sure. So um, education is more valued now and it's expanded on. The curriculum expands um, to a variety of subjects that are intended to stimulate and enrich the minds of students. One of the things that I was talking about with Rudbeck, he said that he took a class in at Berkeley and it was about the impact that insects have on our world. And, <laughs> you know, you don't think That's about funny. that. And we were just eating some blackberries, right? Oh God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, but the there is a place in the ecosystem for everything that we have. And mm -hmm. that's one of the benefits of, again, going to school is it helps to, I think, encourage um, now a lifelong learning, a continuous learning mindset. Whereas I think before, um, definitely before COVID, but on the 21st century, I think that's where continuous learning has shifted. Before that yeah. in the 20th century, I think it was more about, no, I'm going to college. That's it. I don't need to go and get, you know, more college. People would do professional development, but not necessarily keep going to school. Okay. Or picking up courses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe, I don't know about, I know I ask you about your family a lot, mm -hmm. but um, what's the highest degree that somebody in your parents have? 
Uh, my dad has a master's degree in what? In ichthyology, which is the study of fish. He's a marine biologist. Oh, that, oh, both of your parents are scientists. Yeah, they both <laughs> do that. Yeah. That's so good. Does he fish? Oh, yes, he does. He was a commercial fisherman down in South Florida before he went to school. That's pretty smart. Mm -hmm. He got a degree in something he absolutely loves yeah. and was a career path. So anyway, as more subjects were added, as I was saying, you know, children, college age students were required to attend schools um, more frequently, about six to seven hours a day, five days a week, you know, in the, you know, elementary, middle, and high school. I said we weren't going to talk about that, but that's still part of that basic side of it. And then they moved into college and there was more freedom. Mm -hmm. And then they're able to go, okay, I'm going three days a week. But you yeah, were expected so when I was a kid, we were expected yeah. to go to college. It uh, wasn't an option. Really? Okay. Yeah, it was no. like everyone you had to go. Mm -hmm. wasn't really... My mom yeah. graduated high school. My dad graduated. He has a an undergrad and a master's, two masters, as a matter of fact. Mm. But he, um, you know, that was really important to him. And it was important to my mom, but it wasn't that we had an option. We were going to college. The oh. funny thing is, I'm the one that went to college. Neither my brother, ne neither one of my brothers did. So uh -huh. that's the difference, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's funny. Yeah. Any, so as we use this knowledge of education and how school has changed, over that history of that 15th, 16th, all the way up to the 21st century, higher ed and college, you know, we've seen a shift also due to COVID. So here we are, um, European, we're going to just take a minute, European settlers landed in the U.S. The first institution of higher education was established, and it was called Colonial Colleges, and the first Colonial College was Harvard. Um, and that is very Harvard College, which was renamed to Harvard University. Mm -hmm. And so that is a fun fact about Harvard and why that's behind us. Yeah. Um, college, uh, colonial colleges were only for those seeking knowledge in ministry work. Oh, so remember okay. the basis is the Bible, Bible is how it teach, it would teach people how to operate a business, how to live a, a, a a life of faith, mm -hmm. you know, and morality, I would say too, yeah. probably to a certain extent. Um, studies of agriculture and engineering came later in the 19th century. Um, medicine law, medicine and law were also during the American Revolution timeframe. But as interest of potential degrees and career paths began to expand, we can see that it moved all the way through education, even to learning about fish and bugs. Yes. Can study anything now. Yep. So mm -hmm. education in today's society in our 21st century. Mm -hmm. Now let's look at what college is like now. So colleges were um, only considered really for the elite of society. Mm -hmm. um, when we were, you know, it was a privilege to be able to go to school. Yes. Yeah. And while you're expected, you know, it was like there was more um, since the, the focus was on education, it was more of a priority and that's where funds were allocated to send their children to college. So mm -hmm. it, it didn't mean something, um, yeah. back in the 20th century, for sure. 19th, it meant that, you know, your family was wealthy. It meant that you had the opportunity, the parents to be able to give their children a, a, a better life, maybe than what they had had. 
right. and colleges were open to all classes and individuals. And, you know, it was just topics that many people would not consider to be a value, such as civil rights. You know, all of these things are coming into play in mm -hmm. the 20th century here. So there's over 3,000 colleges and universities in the U.S. Did you know that? Um, I didn't know there was that many. Surprising. There are a lot, right? but not that many. Yeah, wow, 3,000. So many of those numbers are not just four-year schools. It's okay. also two-year schools, and some of it creates um, schools that have a very specific focus, like it could have been on just engineering or real estate, or it could have been on... Um, even like barbershops. I mean, they were counting a lot of these schools. So there's a vocational path as well as a, a professional path. Mm -hmm. And so those 3000 schools, it, it is quite a bit that's going on over here for sure. The bigger the institutions in the country, they were enrolling over 60,000 students. And you know that UCF is one of those mega schools. Yeah. Did you know sure. that? It's like one of the biggest schools. Second largest. Second, okay. Yeah. yeah. And Arizona State is, there's always this battle between Arizona State and UCF. <laughs> Arizona State is usually the first one, um, but it can fluctuate at times. I bet you didn't know this, though. Um, Valencia College, it has over 60,000 students between their, um, they have 12 campuses. Oh, no way. That's so many students mm -hmm. for that. Over 60,000. Yeah. Wow. And at, at one time, I looked it up like Seminole State uh, College. They have over 30,000 students. Okay. And they all, those are, that's a feeder school. So they are feeding right into UCF. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, for real. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a part of how UCF did a partnership with those schools to help make it easier. If you didn't get accepted by UCF um, from the first round, then there's a path for you to be able to get there. Mm -hmm. And you went to the community college and from there you'd be able to transfer in. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So colleges and universities spend about $26 billion per year on research and development with $16 billion coming from federal agencies. That's a lot of money. And that research and development are the things that we can experience that um, are from like other shows that we've had, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, possibly from makeup and, you know, and the, what goes into it. But our previous, one of our next shows that would be coming up is... Um, the future of, well, uh, sustainability. It's not the future of sustainability, but Anna and her show um, that's gonna be coming up for our listeners, all about sustainability and how that can impact our world. As we continue to look at post-secondary institutions in the US, they seem to mirror what is going on in society. And that's where we saw civil rights and then interest in entrepreneurism and then you know startup which is, you know, different from each other. I mean, they're in the same path, you know, entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. but that could be, you know, an established business. Somebody who's a startup is something in this, you know, where you're just bootstrapping everything, you know, to get to a certain place so that you can have a viable business and you're still considered an entrepreneur. So schools have resorted to going online, like what you were sharing, mm -hmm. and that's been a big, big adjustment. For, for myself, I always like a lot of stimulation, and I like being with people. How about you? I do, too. I don't like really being online, and I don't know. I just, I definitely like the in-person classes better with being taught the information instead of, like, because a lot of mine, it's like I'm teaching myself now yeah. with the, with the, you know, the, they will provide the lecture, 
you know, um, a, like a recording of their voice and also the notes and stuff, but I definitely, I like the in-person better. There was the more interaction experience. because you could talk with the person next to you, right? Yes, exactly. And be potentially in groups and, you know, there's opportunities to go and do presentations and that in-person um, aspect of education is really, I think it's very vital because that's how we learn how to, what's the, what's the proper social space that we should be having with each other? How do we maintain eye contact? You know, things that we take for granted and now we're tr learning how to adapt to them mm -hmm. in this world of where we constantly look at a screen and we stay in one position and we don't move around as much, right? Yeah. It's a challenge, mm -hmm. I think. It is. It's so we're going to go and see what will college look like in 2021 next year. So we asked some people on the street and let's hear what um, those responses. I think next year, 2021, college will get back to somewhat normalcy in the, in the respect of uh, probably more classrooms and less uh, Zoom and video based lecturing and, and teaching. So over here, we are going to be seeing that um, Paul Revel, the former Secretary of Education for Massachusetts, had said that there is a silver lining in the terms of this pandemic hmm. and its impact on the education system. In an interview with the Harvard Gazette, he stated, we can make the most of this crisis to help redesign better systems of education and child development. He believes that now is the time to look at the shortcomings of the education system that have been coming up during the global crisis and fix them so that if this were to ever happen again, the transition would be much smoother. He further goes on to say that in this situation, we don't simply want to frantically struggle to restore the status quo because the status quo wasn't operating. It wasn't effective. Yeah. And it certainly wasn't serving all of the children and adults fairly. So the pandemic only made the need for these changes um, to be fast-tracked now. Mm -hmm. And what will the future of education look like? Well, let's hear from a cross-section of people uh, as to what their thoughts are. In five years, I hope it doesn't shift over, but I suspect with what's going on now that they will probably shift a lot more of the uh, you know, classroom lectures, assignments and things to more video-based, online video-based, and less hands-on uh, classroom lectures, laboratories, field trips. I'd hate to see those latter things go uh, go completely electronic or, or online, but I suspect that's the way they'll go. So Serena, welcome to the Interim Whisperer. I am very excited to be able to meet you. I met you through LinkedIn. And one of the things that uh, really inspired me to reach out to you is your positive messages that you put on LinkedIn and the fact that you're actually teaching other people how to use LinkedIn. And I went, that's a plus. I should have you as a full-time guest, you know, like a regular guest on the next show that we do. So it's all about LinkedIn and the power of it. But what I really would like to ask you is, what do you think the future of the HR industry will be like five years from now? Given we have COVID, what do you think? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's an honor to be here. And to answer your question, I just recently got into the recruitment industry. So I'm just going to tell you from my experience what I know so far. But in terms of HR, what I've noticed is that there's a lot of emphasis on 
um, things like data analytics and data visualization. So with HR advancing, it's going to definitely lean more towards using those technical skills and teaching people in classes how to present people analytics. I mean, you can even tell this by how HR as a term is being transitioned to people operations. Mm -hmm. um, people are trying to see it more as a business aspect, um, which it is, and, but I like how the verbiage is kind of being changed there. And another thing I've noticed is that some of my friends are going to graduate school for industrial organizational psychology, and that has a lot of emphasis on the research side and on the data analytics side. And a lot of companies like Google are directly hiring from these graduate schools. So I think that that is something that companies are starting to recognize, and they're going to start going down that path in terms of how they want to um, pivot their direction of HR. Um, and then in terms of recruiting, there are a lot of different paths that recruiters can go down. So like contract recruiting or agency recruiting or in-house recruiting. But I think that companies overall are trying to figure out what's best for them. There might even be less in-house roles because of COVID now. I see a lot of them hiring contract recruiters instead of wanting to pay the full benefits for in-house ones. So I think for people who want to become recruiters in their lifetime, that it's going to be more and more common for them to hop around from different contract jobs. Mm, I would agree with that. Something that I have seen when I look at what the future looks like, there's a, a parallel path between marketing and also the, I like the people operations when you said that, because the emphasis is on the fact that these are people. Whereas, you know, HR, we kind of forget that there's a human in front of that word of HR. So I really like that idea. Marketing and HR, we'll say, but people operations, they run a very parallel track. And there has been a lot of uh, data out there that they're going to actually end up merging together. So we in that space of people need to have more of the skills that are centered around marketing and if you think about it, it's very similar. In marketing, we will go and do a lot of customer discovery to be able to see if the product will have good market fit. It's kind of like dating and people. We want to be able to match people up to another person. We'll put our recruitment, our job description out there to be able to get somebody in. So recruiting is all about pulling your audience in, just like in marketing. And then you also have the, the whole management side, which is, you know, again, very parallel. So I feel like uh, we'll have to be focused on employee experience as well as customer experience. And again, that's a marketing concept. I also think that um, something in the future that we should be paying attention to is the flexibility of working remotely and on almost on demand of having that type of not just remote, but flexibility in your job to be able to get your things done. I'm not worried about the Honestly, the robot's taking over because we're bright, creative people. And we should always remember, again, there's a human aspect. So if we keep human-centered, people-centered first, then we'll never be out of jobs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've talked to people about like ATSs, and um, I've heard that a lot of these ATSs will actually... Um, they're very biased, even when they don't try to be. So that's why it's so important mm -hmm. to actually have people looking at resumes 
because otherwise, if you have the, the software screening for certain kinds of positions, they are going to be able to, even though they don't have the subconscious that we do, but they still pick up on those biases. Yeah, they do. Because we as the humans actually identify what are the key words that we want in there to be used when, uh, and just so our audience knows, ATS applicant tracking system. So it's actually identifying what we think is the right candidate when maybe it's really not. It's the bias that comes in there. Well, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I think your insight's great. How can people find you? I'm definitely on LinkedIn, right? Yes. So I'm Serena Sang on LinkedIn, S-A-R-E-N-A-T-S-E-N-G. I post there, well, pretty frequently, sometimes every day. Um, I just started a job. So I actually posted every day this week, um, but didn't reply to comments as quickly as I normally do. But I'm still trying to build my brand on there. Yep. And uh, just so our audience knows, I think that this is a young woman that you should be checking out. Her posts are always positive. They're really encouraging. They're uplifting. And I think that what I predict for you in the future is that you are going to be a thought leader. So, you know, you keep doing what you're doing because it is amazing stuff. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. You're welcome. So, Calvin, I am so excited to have you back as a guest on The Intern Whisperer. Welcome back. Thank you, and I'm always happy to jump on here with you at any point. So I'm, I'm excited and ready to get some good things done again. All right. Well, just so our listening audience knows, um, Calvin, you have just years of experience in higher ed. Um, I'm coming to you because we are doing a special episode on the future of education, specifically higher ed and colleges. My take of what I think is going to happen is um, as COVID has really changed how people are attending school, but also there's this other variable. Everything is going online, on demand, remote. People are looking for faster ways to get educated and and skilled. I feel like um, going to college, a four-year program, will be more of a privilege because I think going to college is about socialization. Uh, not always just the four years of knowledge that you get. I think it will also be something that's more for um, specialty careers that would require something that's like a four-year degree, such as whether it's medicine, which is more than four, law, anything that's very specialized like that, because I think there's going to be a movement to go to two-year and certificates, not necessarily BAVSs. What, What are your thoughts? Where do you think it's going? I, I would say you have a really good pulse on what's going to happen. And I would say the trend, COVID may have sped it up, but I think the trend was going to happen. And what you're seeing for the future of education is, I'll kind of go in, in some of the order that you had. You may not necessarily see all students gravitate to that four-year university at the beginning. Um, COVID is kind of giving, especially in my environment, in River State College, it's a county by county. And you're going to see a lot more students stay a little closer uh, to home because they're seeing they can get a high quality education, um, but an associate's degree and then transfer to that that four-year university if they want to go. So that's one thing. Another piece that you were talking about is certificate programs at this level. Um, A lot of students are seeing and their parents and even the industry is those certificates will allow you to build up to your level. So if you have a two-course certificate program that lets you go out and be a bookkeeper or something along those lines, 
that gets you experience. Um, in the automotive world, you have a four course certificate program. So you, there are areas where you can actually go to work with that certificate. And then those certificates build on to an associate's uh, a science, associates of arts, if that's where you want to go, then you transfer back up. Um, another piece that is coming, it, it started for us and a lot of places are using the term upskill. So if you're working at your organization and you have staff that you want to get them additional training, um, schools are creating upskill programs with their certificates where you can actually send your folks back. If you wanted to go to career source to get some funding for that OJT to pay you back for letting your student, your staff go to work, those type of things are happening. So the four-year universities are still viable, but I would say for me, what I'm seeing in the future of education is folks are actually starting at that two-year level, certificate level, and building up. Also, with the four-year universities, they are actually starting with COVID. The, the concept of online education for them, things that they may have fought in the past, they're actually doing, and they're seeing that they can leverage them um, as well. So those are some of the things that I'm seeing that COVID has either helped or sped up um, for the future of education. Mm, that's good stuff there. So one of the other predictions that I'm going to put out there is many times like Coursera and Udemy, whether it's Udemy or Udemy, however people want to say it, Skillshare, they have a lot of courses, college level courses taught by top tier professors at like Harvard, MIT. I feel like there, there's going to be a movement to adopt those as a way to supplement your education or bring them in as electives or even core classes. I feel there's going to be a movement to um, every state has, you know, whatever it takes to get something accredited, but there's going to have to be a way to make those types of courses that people are earning and they're rigorous. They really do have, you know, certainly rigor because you're having to demonstrate the skills more mm -hmm. than um, just take quizzes on them or tests. So I feel like there's gonna be movement to adopt those into curriculum and, and count them towards a degree, like life skills. The, I don't know what your predictions are, but you know these are how I'm seeing that I, I feel things will go, life skills. I feel like that's gonna be coming into the equation even more than, I know some schools will allow it, some don't, but I feel like there's gonna be a hybrid even now. Internships will move not necessarily just even from like a, doing it as a quarter thing. It's being able to really integrate an internship experience directly, make it parallel, kind of like dual enrollment. They used to do this back in high school, way back in the day, where people would go to work, they'd go to school half time, but it was a blended and everything counted. So I feel like there will be more of a movement to make internships even more valuable because it is closing that gap for what the students experience to be able to get into the workforce more quickly. No, I, I, I agree with you. We're going to see, and we have seen in the higher education space where internships, um, co-ops at some of the larger universities, and now even some smaller apprenticeships are coming back um, because what you're going to see is Education is great, but getting the skills to actually do the job. Um, the benefit for the employer is there. They get, they get labor and they get to mold and actually do a pre-check. Um, Qualifying, yeah. You want yeah, to qualify. Of, of someone. And then with students, my biggest thing with them is like do as many internships as possible. Try it before you buy it. 
see what you like because coursework and then actual work are different things. So see what those what what you see you like out there. So that's gonna be that's growing and is expanding. There are some schools in, in this state where internships are built into all courses. Um, um, I, I know that, that is coming um, down the line for a lot of folks, but that is going to be, if you're going to say, a wave of the future of internships. Uh, try it before you buy it, and then we're building those things up even more. And just to kind of add to um, one of the organizations, NACE, National Association of College and Employers, when you talk about life skills, I'm part of NACE. Most schools are. I'm on a task force where we're looking at what we're calling them career readiness competencies. And some of the things that employers are looking for in new hires, that leadership, that teamwork, social justice, those are actual things that employers say they want to see. So as universities and colleges, we have to identify ways to integrate those competencies within um, our framework of what we're doing with students. It's mm-hmm. not classroom, it's co-curricular. Um, but a lot of the schools, if you do research, where we have this career ready initiative, and that's the biggest thing, the eight uh, competencies that NACE says employees want to see, we're building those in all our programs. So so what are those competencies? I knew you were going to ask me. Uh, it's okay uh, if you can only give I, me some of them. I, I will send you a sheet of them. Um, teamwork is there. Uh, leadership, um, global fluency, believe mm. it or not, and it has a definite. So you can't just sit and be, hey, this is my town. What is going on? Yeah. How does it impact the greater world? Right. Because yeah. we are global. Correct. Um, diversity is a huge driving competency um, there. Um, technical competency. So again, we all say we're on social media, but you have to have a computer savvy aspect. So that's one of the, the ones that are there as well. So I'm missing two, but I'll send those to you. That sounds great. I'll go ahead and add that in. So the the next question that I have is where, because I really believe that obviously Augmented reality, virtual reality—it's going to be coming into the same in the same way uh, into the the school experience as well as into the work experience. Keeping up with those technologies, uh, at various ways that we can learn. Right now, we do everything by Zoom, you know, because this is how we can connect. But imagine the place where I can actually, like in Star Trek, you know, just hologram, whatever it is, hologram myself into your office. And wouldn't that be amazing with COVID where instead of just picking up the phone, yeah, I just have my presence right there in your office. And we're having this interview more like what would be in person instead of looking like it's on a Zoom. Yeah, I I, I would say that is the future future. Um, yeah. But I, I would say that could be one of the things we're looking at or just projecting your image where you're in a boardroom with a group of folks because um, what we've had to do with COVID is we've, we've gotten smarter and just kind of with meetings. And I was telling you earlier, folks in my office, we're all here, we have separate offices, but we still meet on the computer. I, I think, yeah, we can imagine where we could bring our, our space, our, our images into a, a room where we can interact. That would be kind of Star Trek-ish if, if we get there. So that could be the future future. I, I know with what we're doing in higher ed is that Zoom, it was a, a newer feature for us. 
Um, Blackboard Collaborate is something that we've, we've been using as a class uh, application, but we're getting smarter with that. Microsoft Teams. So I, I think being able to combine all of these different platforms into something that's economical and feasible for us to use. So I guess to me, the future of higher ed is just because we did this type of stuff because of COVID, I don't see how we go back to just traditional face-to-face -face anything. And I say that- Just solely, just solely. Correct. And yeah. One of the things from my area is the future of higher ed is virtual fairs are here to stay. Um, yeah. I, I tell you, I, I can honestly say I didn't like them as much because, you know, it's, it's 10 minutes and then the clock, literally, you get kicked out of it. And in 10 minutes, that's hardly enough time to have much of a conversation. So I know it's just like meet and greet, really. But I had more people. I met with more people when I was on the floor. And I still, you know, we're humans and we're complex and we're messy and we're amazing, all of these things. At the end of the day, though, we're built for relationship. And we'll never, I don't think, ever should get away from being face-to-face, -face, but this I see as another tool that can help us, you know, bridge more gaps, meet hopefully more people, but I've had more people in, in the career fairs when I'm on the ground. Oh, and I, again, I don't discount that, and I would say just to make my, my clarification is I think you're going to get both. So back in the day, you know, before COVID, I would have this big day in for a fair, and that was it. But what if now we do that big fair in person for the people who need face-to-face, -face, but now because this is economical, I can have multiple niche fairs on a platform and we have more than we used to. So I'd see, mm -hmm. I think there's- Extend the reach. Correct, is where yeah. I'm, yeah, we're still gonna have, we still got some folks who we have to touch and face-to-face. -face. I think that's coming back when we're safe. But what this has done for me is now, instead of having one big fair, I can have a medium-sized fair in three smaller mm -hmm. niches on different platforms so we can let folks meet as they want to. So this is probably going to be my last question. You know, people always talk about the rise of the robots, right? And how the robots are taking away jobs. And, and what they're taking away are things that are tasks that could be automated to make things faster. I think that now, this will, I don't think I believe, now we've seen that there are a lot of things that can be automated, like sending out messages to say, thank you for reaching out. We'll be in touch with you soon. Or before we had that type of a response online, it was with phones where you have reached, you know, press the extension that you want to connect with. I don't like those things personally. I like connecting with a person because I find it really frustrating to get caught in that loop where I slip through the cracks for some reason. I forums, you send me to a forum to try and find something and it takes me way longer to do that. And I don't, I don't think it's just me, honestly. I think it's a lot of people. So I always appreciate the human touch. And I have seen a lot more companies beginning to shift back to having that balance of, yes, let me talk to a person. Mm -hmm. And they're valuing the people that stay with the company and some incentives I've seen. And it's still, I'm going to get back on task with the robot thing, but it's finding that balance, like I said. Um, however, what I have seen is that companies are offering employees 
like really, if they stay five years, one of the companies is HubSpot. They give them $5,000 a month off, go do whatever you want. It's a sabbatical. And that's a bonus to encourage engagement, obviously, retention, longevity with the company. I think that there's going to be a bigger move for that to keep people in place and to help them get really expert at a position. So it becomes now this balance of of what is out there in the workplace because automations are wonderful. It's good to have the balance between them. Robots are great. Um, I don't think that they will take the place of people because again, we're complex, we're messy, <laughs> you know, we're amazing. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't think that people should worry about that, but the upskilling is gonna be really key and making sure that we as humans are always on top of what happened today when you open up your phone? Oh, look, there's an update on Facebook. There's an update on my iPhone. What happened on Skype? You know, everything you use has updates. I, I, I got you. And I, I smile because I tell a lot of folks um, the, the old movie, The Matrix. Mm. Uh, I, I think to me, we kind of put ourselves in The Matrix on purpose because we always have our phones. We always have our laptops. We're always connected. Um, and then if we're not, we freak out. But so I, I would say I to me, the future, there's a place for the, the virtual aspect of it, but we're never going to lose the place where that human touch is there. Um, one initiative that we are working on some other schools are is uh, we're leveraging additional outside customer service training because in this world, you know, students, we normally say students, but they're really clients and they're, they're paying for a service. So we got to make sure we're giving them the proper customer service. I think that kind of keeps us in the mind frame of that human touch is important. But when you get someone on the phone, how do you take care of that client? When they come into your office, how do you take care of that client? And if you happen to get them on your, your computer, here or not, they're still a client. We have to give them that personal touch. And it's okay to say, hey, we didn't finish everything you did on the computer. Once you come on into the office and let us sit down with you. So I think we, we still have to remember, you're right, we're complex and we're messy, but we all need to take care of each other. And I think that keeps us out of the matrix. And it also makes sure we're enhancing, we're using technology and technology is not a crutch. I think sometimes we use technology as a crutch uh, more so than enhancing what we do. Mm -hmm. I would agree with you. Well, I want to thank you for your time. And just so our listeners know that um, Calvin Williams is always one of those go-to people that I um, seek out for anything that's in that higher ed. He is a, a, a consultant. He also works at a school. But Calvin, uh, how can anybody reach you? I would say the easiest way um, just to kind of see my, my platform, if you will, is on LinkedIn. Um, just pull me up, Calvin Williams. Uh, I think it's L Calvin underscore Williams. Um, I'm in Fort Pierce, Florida. So you'll know you and you'll see my smiling face. Uh, so you know that's me. Uh, probably that's the best way just to kind of see what I'm about on both sides for the consulting and also what I'm doing currently. So that would be the easiest way for them to get in contact with me. Thank you so much for being a guest today. All right. Thank you for having me. Good seeing you. Have a great weekend. All right, so we're moving into what the future of education will look like. Robin, what do you think it's going to be? The future of higher education. So in terms of the pandemic? From the just... student side, from the school side, what do you think? Let's focus on you. One of the things that I think is going to happen is more focus on mental health 
like mm-hmm. the last year in 2019, it was all about, um, you know, being able to have your own time, <clears throat> self-care. That was the term that everybody was saying. But, you know, in 2020, we've been thrown for a loop. And as we move into 2021, I think it's going to be mental health. What about you? You mean in terms of because of the pandemic? Whatever it means to you, general? yeah. Yeah, I would say so for sure. You know, I think they're all doing the best that they can. Who's they? Well, the schools are allowing as best they can to keep, you know, like the library open and the gym open and um, things like that. Um, so that they're, you know, students are allowed to go on campus still, but it's just very as restricted as possible to keep everybody safe. But, you know, it's not like they totally close the campus down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. And since mental health will be that, be that way, um, I would think that they would have more things that would potentially be outdoors. Like, yeah, I could see that. At UCF, they have a ropes course. A ropes course? What is? What you mean? haven't seen that? Okay, so they have this big ropes course, and it's things that you can do with um, team building, oh, and you okay. can go out with somebody, and you learn, you you know, climb some type of a giant cargo uh, <laughs> rope, and then if you want, you can fall back and the people will catch you. There's oh, some of that, okay. but you know, it's, it's basically obstacles. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's obstacles, but you can go and do these various rope activities, you know, like scaling walls or crawling under them and, mm-hmm. you know, being able to exert yourself physically, but it is there to help build um, teams, um, increase di- team dynamics, team communication, and also establish more trust. within. So you should go check it out before you leave and yeah, um, it is. It's on the. Mm, I can't remember. I've seen it on the campus, but you know your campus over there at UCF is gigantic. Hmm. But uh, just Google it. Find ropes course. And yeah, you'll see it for sure. Mm-hmm. I'll look into that. Yeah, they also have at the school a uh, a rock gym. I think that oh, they yeah. may be moving some of those things maybe outside too. The rock climbing and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I would say so. That yeah, that hasn't been open. I know and a lot of the machines at the gym are closed. So I mean, it, like again, like I said, it's good that they're trying their best to keep everything open to keep everyone happier and being able to go out. But obviously, it has to be very, very um, restricted. Yeah, it is. And they're always thinking of you know how many people are at that school, mm-hmm. but also do they have the manpower to go and clean everything the way that it's supposed to? So that's why yeah. I think that there's a lot of that stuff that's closed. Mm-hmm. So again, the ability for mental health is um, connecting with nature. I'll, I see something like that happening more where there's maybe more walks, uh, nature walks, being able to explore things that are outside to um, encourage creativity, mm-hmm. uh, connection with the environment, and then also allow for more socialization because they yeah. be more distant. Mm-hmm. I think diversity and inclusion, because this has been the year for that too, with George Floyd's death and the others that have been impacted by um, diversity and some mistreatment by the police. It's been a really big year, but we've also seen some amazing things come out. And that was where uh, so many uh, Black Lives Matter was a big movement, but it was also uh, elevating and escalating the need to make sure that there was more diversity in companies and Mm -hmm. even in their leadership, which was not apparently represented as well. So I think that growing divide is going to be um, even closed even more. especially with the Black and Latino communities 
Um, yeah. Institutions need to be treating this gap and really having a heavy focus on uh, DNI is what they're calling it, diversity and inclusion. And sometimes it's DIE, diversity, inclusion, and equity. So we should see more improvements there. I think that college demographics will continue to shift because hmm. remember we have non-traditional students and people that value education are working a job. They're working part-time, full-time, and then they're attending school. So Definitely. the demographics from age to the ethnicity of where people come from is going to be there. They, colleges need to be able to prepare themselves to support a broader range of these student demographics and embedding a greater sense of flexibility into the course models and teaching methods. How they do that, accommodating international students. Valencia has a huge international population that attends the school. So they bring them in and sometimes you'll see them and in, in grouped in their own little communities. But that's really important to be able to know how to interact with them. And uh, truly America has been called the melting pot. I think we'll see even more of that. Student amenities. I think going to school is gonna be something that is more of a privilege. However, I did see in LinkedIn that Southern New Hampshire University has reduced the rates of going to school for uh, a degree to like 15,000 a year. So originally I thought it would be you know, more expensive. I think for the online, that would be the case. But I think when you live on the campus, that's where we'll see even more of the amenities because mm -hmm. what is it that you're gonna get? You All were right. just sharing some of the cool things that you see up. Yeah. There's a gym, mm -hmm. rock climbing wall. Yeah, they have a, um, a huge pool. Clubs, movies yeah. on the lawn. They yes. have tons of activities, plays, musical festivals, obviously sports. Mm -hmm. The things that we're really used to, but the emphasis on like uh, mental and emotional you know, health will mm -hmm. certainly be pretty high too. Oh, yeah. And being able to help prepare students for post-graduation. I feel like what should be happening, I know we've talked about this on some other things, is that from the day you set foot into a college, you should begin interviewing. You should learn as much as you can about yourself, really understand what are the skills that you need workplace so that you can almost have a, I'll say, dual enrollment experience where you're working and your work experience will account for school credit, mm -hmm. but you'll also be implementing like what you're learning in the workplace. I think internships will have even a higher place in the process of being able to, to engage what you're learning in the class, whether it's classroom or online, and take that into the workplace so that you'll be able to find a job more quickly. Yeah, I would say so as well. Mm -hmm. So um, dual value pressures, cost considerations, and the value of going to college, that's another one of the um, predictions for that. You know, the institutions will likely consider reallocating their budget, uh, looking at where is the best place for spending all of their dollars so that there's a higher um, return on investment in the students. And they might look at, you know, how to make things more affordable, more accessible for individuals with disabilities, um, different ethnicities and races to be able to, uh, you know, have access to school and achievement, academic leadership, you know, that's going to be really key part of how you can differentiate yourself is uh, the things that can stand out. What were you in charge of? 
How are you uh, keeping track of that? How did you quantify it in some way? You know, that's really going to be very, very vital because I think everything is is measurable now, and we are not even realizing how much we are engaging in that. From you know how many social people are on your channels, yeah, to your grades, you know, and also you know who's who's the highest person in your small group. Mm-hmm. You know, those are all of the things that begin to help create a better experience for the student. Mm-hmm. Lastly, preparing students to enter into the job market before graduating. So again, to me, it's like learning how to prepare your resume right away. Definitely. Yeah. I'll I think there should be a class on it, honestly. Not just, I don't mean just like a, a workshop, but I think that there should be a one credit class that's always about learning how to navigate social channels professionally. What is correct that you should text? What is it that you should use email? Yeah, proper etiquette for that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think that should be a part of it. That would be, I think, very helpful to prepare students for workplace opportunities before they graduate. Definitely, yeah. That'd be very beneficial. Is there anything that you think of that you would have liked? I know you're getting ready to graduate. I mean, honestly, like the career services at, you know, they have that at every college, it seems like they They offer a lot of good help, I think. But things like what you talked about with like writing resumes or like interviewing interview skills. Yeah, things like that. Knowing like how to find different people to network through like LinkedIn or different affiliated websites with the school and how to find internships and things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also building up a network because every time we have our show, we always ask our our guests to share mentoring advice. And every single one of them has said, learn how to network and, you know, like build your network. So you're on LinkedIn and hopefully, you know, you're going, okay, who are three people or or maybe five people I should meet this week. And every day you're looking at different, you know, opportunities, companies you might want to potentially explore. And then also the groups that are on LinkedIn and then, you know, reaching out to people and saying, hey, could you look at my resume or would you be able to, if you know of any openings, uh, would you let me know? But it starts with establishing a relationship. Like when you and Definitely. I first met, yeah. we didn't know each other, did we? Right. No. We had no. to learn each other. Mm-hmm. Right. And yes. we still don't know each other. Like, <laughs> no. in this, you know, it's like three months. Yeah. Know? How do you really know somebody over three months? You exactly. only know what you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just... So that relationship is key. Mm-hmm. So here we are, we're closing up and um, it's our institutional efforts to increase degree and attainment and be able to have, know that you're making a difference is going to be very, very key. Again, relationships in schools, relationships outside with people outside of schools are going to be very, very important. It's really about being able to seize the moment and reconnect with ourselves and also with everybody around us. Uh, making sure that we're closing equity and achievement gaps, communication gaps, and just feeling that we are the best person we can be at this moment in our life every day. Exactly. As we finish up our show, I want to make sure that I'm saying thank you to Robin for being the editor and well, the associate editor with me. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Of course. And also to Ashley and Ian um, for being video production uh, editors and Emily Trosper for our content creator. So as we're signing off, we always want to invite everybody to please visit internpursuit.tech 
and employers sign up and become an employer for change as well as find your perfect match. So you all take care and we look forward to talking with you again soon.